Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Hello, welcome to The Rest is Politics Question Time with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. Thank you very, very much for everyone who's sending questions for us to answer. I think we're up to a thousand again, and I can see Alistair's incredible stack of handwritten questions. If anybody doesn't <laughs> hasn't seen it, you can go on Twitter, and I think there's thousands of people peering at this uh, stack of questions. So then, Alistair, having gone through a thousand questions, what's your first one? We've got a lot of questions about our interview with Keir Starmer. For the sake of completeness, I should read the one from Ian Johnston. Alistair, why did you give Keir such an easy ride when you were quite critical of him sometimes? I don't think we gave him an easy ride. We tried to let him speak, which we would do to Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss if they would come on. But let's just run through some of the things that other people said, because I think they they coalesce around certain points, which actually you made at the time. Julian Donovan, how do we get Keir Starmer to stop chasing unicorn red wall voters, e.g. no return to EU, no PR? When will he set out an agenda we can get behind and not keep being defined by Johnson and Brexit? Peter Howe. Was Keir right to discard the idea of rejoining or even the single market? How is he going to grow the economy? Scotland, he can't just keep ignoring the demands for a referendum. Stephen said, my biggest disappointment was his lack of acknowledgement of the need for democratic and constitutional reform. And here's one for you, Rory. Jake Ferris Woolley. Rory, I tried to ask you this question at the Kite Festival. (laughs) <laughs> You're obviously getting far too many questions at the Kais Festival. Um, but he was quoting Dominic Cummings, who'd said that one of the system's failures in our politics is the relationship between the lobby and Westminster. Is Keir Starmer falling into that trap? Um, so I think if I summed up all the questions, Roy, I'd say where they were was they thought he came across very well. A lot of people like him. They felt he was honest compared with Johnson. They felt he was in touch, that he understood the world but they were a bit underwhelmed, as you were, I know, by what he was saying about this great plan for economic growth. Well, I, th- I think the problem is that it's too much business as usual. I feel very strongly, and I think you do too, that we are in a much worse situation than he acknowledges. Mm. I think we're going into a 1970s style possible decade of recession. I think that we're in a brutal geopolitical situation. I think our constitutional system is very close to broken. It's not good enough to think, well, if you can just slip in and defeat the Conservatives at the next vote, somehow it's going to be fine because Mm. it's going to have to take the most incredible intellectual clarity to see what a hole we're in, explain to people what a hole we're in, and work out how to chart a path out of it. And I just, I, I thought there was just, he just didn't seem to be acknowledging how bad the problems were. He seemed to be hoping that somehow... You know, there was something that he could could just rely on to get us out. I think also the, the the other thing that came through. I mean, as I said last week, I get why he wants to focus very resolutely on economy, public services, and unity. I get that, but at the same time, there was lots of people saying they were disappointed. For example, that he just very quickly dismissed the idea of you know following up on Leveson for press regulation. I had somebody else who actually got in touch with me, two or three people got in touch and said, you know, why doesn't he just stand up and say, we will not be privatizing Channel 4? Now, he may maybe get nearer the election, he'll do that. Well, why is he not saying that? Wait, wait, that? That should be an easy one. That's not exactly a big red wall issue, privatization of Channel 4. My point is, I think it's that maybe they're just deciding to focus on these 
these three big areas. But I also do think that, you know, there are a lot of, maybe, you know, we're both kind of, we're very much on the same side in the, in the, in the referendum, the European referendum. I think there are a lot of people out there. There's another question we had was from somebody who said, you know, is he, is there a danger? He's going to make the same mistake that Tony Blair made. This is Aidan Lyons in thinking that anti-Tory voters have nowhere else to go, whereas eventually they will find other places to go. And I think, of course, you know, we won three majorities. For Labour to get any sort of majority, they're going to have to win back people that did move away from Labour to other parties. So there's something really good there, isn't there? Because, and this partly comes to something we talked about last week, which is if we're right that we're living in an age of populism, and I I think we both feel that populism is essentially about challenging the establishment, challenging the elite. The problem for Rishi Sunak taking on this trust is she's managing very cleverly to pigeonhole him as the voice of the establishment, the kind of voice mm. of the treasury. She's she's the unorthodox one. And that will be the same problem for Keir Starmer. We're in an age where trying to say business as usual, safe pair of hands is not quite enough. He's going to have to get a bit angrier. He's going to have to show that he gets what's wrong. He's um, for, for listeners. Um, somebody pointed out one of the questions, and actually, I, I'd love to get the name. We'll get the name a bit later. But pointed out that a lot of the stuff that he was saying seemed to be lifted from an economist called Mariana Mazzucato. Very interesting economist, I suppose. Broadly speaking, the left from London University uh, read a book called "The Value of Everything." So I think people who want a bit more of an insight to Kirstama may be worth having a look mm. at that book. But there wasn't much theory, was there? There was a lot of anecdote. Also, I, th- I think that part of the downside of this whole sort of populist approach to politics and the dumbed-down media is that politicians have, seems to me, are giving up on the role that I think they've always had historically, which is partly educating the public about the state of the world, explaining what goes on, as opposed to what you're seeing in the Tory leadership debate was essentially they're, they're playing back to people what they think is going on based upon what they want to think is well, going I'd, on. I'd give Rishi a bit more credit. I mean, I think he's Rishi, no, Sunak's, okay, yeah. Rishi Sunak's doing something quite difficult. I don't think it's the right thing for him to be doing, and I probably don't necessarily agree with all the content, but he does know that people want to hear that he's going to cut tax, not raise it. And he is okay. he's decided to double down and try but to he's not, he's not really he's not really explaining the scale of change that technology is wreaking upon the world economy or the extent to which these supply system changes are going to have a massive impact on, upon all of us. Um, now, we, we're on question time. So here's a, a cheeky question for you. Um, Raymond Buchan, was this Alistair's worst ever idea? Number 10 advisor proposed Celtic Rangers match in Belfast. No, worse, it was worse, Rory. It was worse than that. It was Celtic versus Rangers, where Celtic wore the Rangers strips and Rangers wore the Celtic strips. <laughs> it was, was it the worst idea? It was definitely, as Brian Clough would say, it was definitely in the top one. It was in the top one. Um, I Look, I don't remember. Look, it's, it's in the government papers that came out last year. I can only imagine that during the Good Friday Agreement referendum, I had a brainstorm a brainstorming session <laughs> with lots of different people and we kicked ideas around. There's one idea I do remember from that period, which was bloody good, I have to say, and that was we got Tony Blair to do these handwritten, we had handwritten posters all over Northern Ireland. Um, and, you know, that was a great, we talked about David Trimble yesterday. It was a, it was a great campaign that, and it was so exciting and I was so happy when we won it. But no, that was without doubt one of my worst ideas. Um, and Jonathan Powell, to be fair to him, 
uh, who Jonathan doesn't like football. He's got no interest in football. He knows that I'm obsessed with football. Um, you, and you mean there's, I, there's somebody else who's not interested? In, I thought you thought said I was the only person in the world who wasn't. No, you're not the in only football. person. You're the, you're the only person who knows absolutely nothing. Jonathan <laughs> does know what Rangers the Celtic are. <laughs> I do know what Celtic and Rangers is. I, I would like to like to clarify. I'm speaking no, to you, you here. From you, can't, you can't. You can't. You can't live live up where you you do in Scotland without knowing what Rangers and Celtic. In fact, are. My, my great memory of this is your friend Frank Roy, the Labour MP for Motherwell, a great yeah. Celtic supporter. So I said to him, "What's your political philosophy?" He said, "It's very straightforward." He said, "Monday to Friday, my body belongs to the trade union movement. Saturday, my heart belongs to Celtic, and Sunday, my soul belongs to the Catholic Church." Oh. Fabulous, fabulous. Listen, here's one for you, Dad. Because you keep telling us how this sort of 10-year global recession that we're going into, Dan Simpson, how do you two remain resolute and hopeful when politics is so bleak? Well, I think it's quite it's quite tough. And it's it's something that Alistair and I keep, you and I keep, keep going around. I mean, I think that it's not just bleak what they say, but that there's a relationship between what an incredibly unpleasant, weird system it is and the bleakness of what you see on your television, that there's a reason why you don't get clear critical thinking and honesty out of politicians. And that's because some weird combination of the public, the media, social media force them to warp their minds, force Mm. them to stop thinking like normal people. I think the thing that keeps me resolute and hopeful is the fact that there are so many people out there who remain resolute and hopeful and I know you said the thing about, you know, young people aren't always right, but I, I do still detect an awful lot of passion and a lot of ideas. And, and I, look, I think we're going through a terrible, terrible period in history. I think it could actually, it could eventually be on the par with the 30s and even, even worse um, and all that followed. But at the same time, I think there's enough energy and enough youth and enough passion out there. So I guess young people is the answer, the answer so, to so me. Let, let's link this in. I mean, one thing I am hopeful of, Max Mazuki has written in with a question, Rory, do you believe that foreign aid actually helps the most vulnerable? This is an example of somewhere where I think we could be about to see something very, very radical. We've talked about this quite a lot on the show before, but I think the pressures that are now on may mean that we start doing assistance to the poorest countries in the world in a smarter way. And for me, of course, that means doing much more assistance in the form of cash, trusting the poorest people in the world to know what they actually need Mm. rather than giving them objects they don't. I I was very struck recently in a refugee camp. People were being given cooking oil. They were being given blankets. They were being given tents. And the first thing they were doing was selling those things to turn them into cash so they could get Mm. things that they actually needed. And you imagine all that you could save in terms of the transport, the planes. I I was actually a bit shocked in the United States to see people who were spending tens of millions hiring planes to take American goods to Ukraine, thinking that that was the most helpful thing they could do. Mm. When, of course, that money would have been much better spent giving it directly to Ukrainians so they can actually buy the goods that are very much available in the European markets. They don't need 37 million spent on American planes bringing American stuff over. Now, by the way, Roy, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about Charter Cities yesterday is we actually had a lot of questions about Charter Cities this week. Oh, go on then. Um, Ian Smith, I've been reading up on Charter Cities. I find it very, very scary. Tom Hickmore, this looks to me like the return of medieval baronies. Susan Cox, I've been reading about Charter Cities and this terrifying vision of having parts of Britain where UK laws won't apply. Just to remind people, just in case you missed yesterday's podcast. Well, it's essentially, it's, it's, it's creating cities within our own country 
that wouldn't be governed by the laws of our own and, country. And, and it's, an, it's an idea from this World Bank chief economist, Paul Romer, who originally dreamt it up as an idea for international development. So it was dreamt up by Roma because he believed that it was the thing to do. He thought the fundamental problem in international development was governance and corruption. Mm. So he thought there's nothing you can do. For example, the example he gave me when I talked to him in, in the States was Libya at the time where there was a civil war going on. So he thought, give up on the idea that you're going to somehow be able to do it through the government. Instead, what you do is you just set up a little enclave and you just let capitalism rip. So it's created this very odd coalition between far right kind of Ayn Rand, sovereign individual, Peter in, Thiel, in sovereign individuals. Yeah, a fringe bit of the international development community. And the model in their head has always been Hong Kong, which basically mm. started as a barren rock, was taken out of Chinese government control allowed to rip with very few laws and took off. But it's a very, very odd thing to think about doing in Britain, which is a very mature democracy with very highly developed rules. Yeah, but where our rights are being taken away left, right and centre, not least, by the way, check out Gina Miller's article about the Northern Ireland Protocol, where she draws attention to an awful lot of the other stuff that's going on that we haven't been focused on. And the other thing, I gave a shout out yesterday to the Charter Cities Institute website, which is the, the sort of propaganda about the whole thing. The Baker Street Herald is where I recommend people go if they want to find the other side of the argument. Um, and the guy who runs that website is the guy who actually ran up to me at a railway station a few years ago and thrust the sovereign individual into my hand and that's what I wrote about, and we'll put the thing I wrote about it in the show notes. Now, Rory, we're getting, we're getting a bit of flack. I've got oh, yeah, to go tell on. you this. Go on. Quite a lot of questions this week about the climate, okay, and about the wildfires and so forth. And, you know, quite a few of them say, they do say, you two regularly bang on. Charlotte Baker says this. Alan Viner says this, that we bang on about how much we care about the planet, but barely a week goes by that we don't talk about having got on or off a plane. Andy Moore, based on what sounds like both presenters' global workload, I want to ask how either Alistair or Rory defend the amount they fly for their jobs. They often seem to be residing in a hotel about to leave or have just landed at an airport. So it's a good challenge. I find it hard to defend. I, 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 I'm go I'll give it a go. Go on then, you're a Tory, you're, a Tory. you're still a Tory, <laughs> give it a go. I work in international development and I believe that the fundamental problem in international development is execution on the ground and the quality of projects. And if mm. I'm to raise money for projects on the ground, I need to be able to look donors in the eyes and say, I was there, I was in the village in Rwanda, this is how it works. Mm. And I've seen such bad stuff done by people trying to manage things remotely, particularly in conflict zones in some of the poorest countries in the world. So I don't think I can do my job without getting out on the ground. And unfortunately, that involves being in a plane. And would you say, Roy, that you find it very hard to do your job without me flying around the world as well? Do you think that would be even harder for you? <laughs> well, I, <laughs> I'm going to hand over to you to defend your uh, well, flight schedule. No, I, I, I think, look, I'm a lot better than I used to be. I mean, I regularly now will take the train if I'm going to Europe. Um, I, internal flying is virtually a thing of the past. Um, I've turned I, in recent months. I have turned down quite a few trips, and partly that's mainly because you know maybe it's partly because I just don't want to travel as much as I was. But at the same time, it's in the back of my mind the whole time. Every time you get on a plane, should you really be doing this? Um, but uh, you know, I kind of agree with you. It's it's very very it's hard. But I'll tell you that one of the other questions we got, um, John Duncan, Tory leadership 
contenders keep saying we have to take the country with us on climate change as their sort of excuse for inaction. But if that's the case, why are there no education campaigns going on within government about just how we need to change our habits? And he's absolutely right. Yeah. Well, I also think we need to be realistic. I mean, one of the horrors that I came across in DFID, Department for International Development, when I was Secretary of State there, in the middle of the Syrian crisis, so we're now going back a few years, they decided to move our Syrian team up to East Kilbride near Glasgow. Mm-hmm. And they did it on the grounds that it would be good for the regeneration of the area around East Kilbride, and it would save money on office rent. And I said, well, how are they going to be able to participate in all these Syria meetings in London? Because everything's done in the margins, face-to-face, Ministry of Defense, Foreign Office. And we claimed at the time that Syria was our number one global security priority. And they said, don't worry, they'll always be able to fly down for meetings whenever you need them. Well, sure enough, as the weeks and months went on, I saw less and less of them. And I finally went up to East Kilbride, tracked down the team, and was given a lovely presentation by a manager who said he'd arrived and his job was carbon and he'd found far too many unnecessary flights were taking place. So he stopped the Syrian team from coming down from London. So we we need to join these things up a little yeah. bit more, I suppose, is what I want to say politely. Yeah. There was um, John John Ranford. Um, I think it's Ranford because it's in my scribble, having read through it a couple of days ago. Will the wildfires be the tipping point in the debate in the UK or will backbenchers continue to sort of back the fossil fuel lobby? Well, well let's, let's get farmers involved. I mean, I think that's really important. And I think the drought is showing us much more clearly the way that these impacts are going to happen. We'll see it on our own food security much more clearly. Mm. And I I think people are feeling that in California. I think the drought that's now running from Colorado right the way through to California and is going to wipe out probably half of the fruit and veg in the United States Mm. is going to bring it home to the United States. There were too many people, I think, who felt gently, well, we may not get flooded in Britain and we could do with a bit more nice weather, seemed to be the sort of view 10 years ago. And I think Mm. people hadn't thought about actually what extreme drought is like, what extreme weather conditions are like, what extreme gales are like. Mm. And all of that, I think we're beginning to feel much more directly. Just before we go to the break, chop suey, taking back control versus the Australian trade deal, this great trade deal that uh, Liz Truss claims to have done, where frankly, the Australians seem to have won hands down. We, we've had no scrutiny, virtually no scrutiny of it in Parliament. And he says he's very worried about the, his capacity to undermine our food capacity and food security. So, so let's, let's finish with that and go to the break. And it's a big difference between Britain and the United States, because, of course, in the United States, the Congress would really scrutinise these trade deals in terms of the impact on their constituents. And we're not really doing that. Thank you very much. Off for the break. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. 
Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the rest of this politics question time with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. Now, Alistair, you're a bit of a linguist and a linguistic analyst. And there's a particular thing, which I don't know the word for, but there'll be a technical word for it, which is when you turn an O into a sort of UO. So I was caught out. Instead of saying Como, I said Cuomo. Now, somebody called Max de Haldevang has convicted you of the same crime. It's, it must oh, no. be a sort of common common thing. He points out that Max de Haldevang, after Alistair's delight at Rory mispronouncing Lake Como, I can't help but tell him he's been saying Putin wrong all his life. It's Putin, not Putin. Now in Russian, and then he writes it out in Cyrillic, it's written Putin. Alistair's pronunciation would be the you, Putin. Ah, well, Rory, the thing is, Having met Putin many, many times, I you know that You almost said Putin again. I, I, I having I, met Putin many uh, you times. You see, now you've done it. You've done it. Having met Putin many times, I know, <laughs> I know that it really pisses him off. <laughs> and so it's a very deliberate thing. It's like when the, it's like when the Daily Mirror sub-editors used to deliberately spell Alistair wrong on my bylines, knowing it would get up my nose. So it's very <laughs> But my, my favourite, I, I mean, we shouldn't really joke about Putin at the moment, but my favourite Putin, Putin uh, story in terms of his name is the fact that in French, he's called Poutine, P-O-U-T-I-N-E, because, of course, as any French Yeah, we don't need to know, translate that. For the, well, probably won't translate yeah, no, it, but, no, no, it, but no. it's sort of somewhere it's between rude. the... Yeah. It's a very rude word, yeah. Very yeah. Rude, right. right, if you're going to have a go at me, yeah, go on, I'm going to have a go at you yeah. now. Yeah. And I'm going to... Last week, right, I wasn't going to raise Eton, but you've, you've really provoked me. You've pressed my buttons now. So last week you were defending Eton because it's created all these great soldiers and wonderful <laughs> prime ministers like Boris Johnson and great actors like Dominic West, Eddie Redmayne, Damien Lewis... I went to visit the website afterwards of Eden, and it said this. There are three different theatres staffed by professional theatre practitioners. This includes a resident designer as well as a theatre director and filmmaker in residence appointed every year to bring the most up-to-date perspectives into the department. I then went on, Rory, to read about their 50 tennis courts, 40 football and rugby pitches, 19 cricket pitches. And, oh, isn't it marvellous? They're going to build four new floodlit artificial pitches. So, honestly, it's, no, it's, 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 it's completely bonkers. Because it's not just Eton, actually. It's all these private schools. No, Eton's definitely got and, the best. And, one of, and no, they're, they're all putting more and more crazy money. It's true in the US. It's true in the UK. And there seems to be a sort of arms race to see 
how much money there. And it's it's. Well, why it's can't also- we get some of that money? Why can't why can't some of these people pay tax, put it into the government exchequer, and let let us have state schools with goods facilities? Part, part of the reason for this, I think, yeah, one of the things that had happening there is that the fees have also gone through the roof. When I went to that school, I think the fees were around, in modern terms, what would be now about £9,000, and they're now about mm. £40,000, £45,000. Rory, I, I feel that I've, I, I love the fact that you now refer to it as that school. I like that. Oh, you're getting into me. And I want to make a massive defense of it. I'll do that next. I'll do that next. Now, here we are. Here's a more serious question. Um, and we're not That was a serious point. Well, I didn't know who the question was from. It just sound like you having a go at me about you. Oh, sorry, it was. It wasn't a question at all, yeah. <laughs> okay, here's a question from Dylan Johnson. As we're currently in the middle of a leadership contest, my question for both of you is, Alistair, at what moment did you realise that Tony Blair staying on as PM was untenable and what were your feelings? And Rory, at what moment did you realise that Theresa May staying on as PM was untenable and what were your feelings? Do you want to start with that? Wow. Um, I think it was volume seven or eight. It's all recorded. But whenever um, we get onto feelings, you always talk about volumes. It's very disturbing. <laughs> well, I, 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 have, I have very large volumes of feeling. <laughs> um, I'll tell you exactly how I think I felt. And it, it, I, I know that sounds strange, but it's very difficult sometimes to divorce, divorce yourself from what you feel now, what I feel now about big events that were happening at the time, where... The reason I do, to be honest, rely on my diary so much is because I get more of a sense of what I felt if I look at them, because I often forget how I felt. But I can remember in particular having the inside. I remember going for a walk with Philip Gould and we were chatting over Tony Gordon, Tony Gordon, Tony Gordon. I remember at dinner that night, Fiona and Gail, Gail Phillips' wife saying, have you two ever had a conversation that doesn't involve the names Tony and Gordon? <laughs> and we looked at each other and said... Not for a very long time, <laughs> <laughs> but I remember we went for a walk and, and basically we, we had agreed, Tony was in agreement that the third election campaign had to be fought on the economy. And he wasn't, he decided, he was settled in his own mind. He was not going to get rid of Gordon as chancellor. And I just had an instinct that if we were going to get them to campaign together in a meaningful way for our third election win, then there had to be some sort of indication. And, and, could, could, and could, could he have got rid of him? I mean, in, in retrospect, could he have got rid of him? He could have done, but I think he, he felt, yes, he could have done. He could have done. He had the, he had, he had the legitimacy. He'd been, it would have been, what, what would have been the impact? Let's play it through. If you were planning for that, try to get rid of Gordon Brown in 2005. Two big things. The first is Gordon was, you know, established as the chancellor, established as a huge figure within the government. Um, and I think, you know, you'd, you'd have had to thought really long and hard about who would take over. He could have sort of, the only job you could think of that maybe he could have offered him was foreign secretary. I'm not sure Gordon would have gone for that. So then you've got, you're back to the old thing about, do you have the big bear outside? Now, I think that's manageable in most circumstances, but it makes life a lot more difficult. So what would have happened? You would have had a very grumpy Gordon Brown on the back benches. Which might, which might have been, which might, he might not have plotted and planned and I don't know. No, he, he would have done, wouldn't he? I think he probably would. He probably wouldn't. And I think, but, but the truth is, Gordon deep down, I think, knew that Tony was not going to do it. Um, and, but how I felt was, we, I remember Philip and I flew up to St. Andrews, I think it was. And Tony was at, um, I don't know, I can't remember what he was doing up there. But, and I remember he, we had this meeting and we walked in and said, oh, here we go. I've got my pollster and my closest advisor coming through the door to tell me my time's up. 
He said that as soon as possible. He basically says we walked oh, in. He wow. said, well, it's not as simple as that, Tony. What we're saying is, what we're saying is... But he was right. Well, there are others. I think Peter Mandelson and others felt that we probably were, were too convinced that that was the way to go. I was always thinking, as in, whenever I was Philip with Philip, we were always thinking about election strategy. And I could not see a way of putting together a successful winning campaign fought on the economy if we did not have the two of them like that. And we were in a position where at the time, the friction and the tension between them, and I don't think it was six and one and a half dozen the other. I think far more of it came from, from, from Gordon's people than from us. But, but, it, but that was the political reality. And we had to address that. So let, let me let me try and Theresa May. I mean, I felt really distraught. I very, very sad. I, I had a lot of affection, admiration for her. It was extraordinary. I mean, just, just to remind listeners, she had come in and in 2017, beginning of 2017, she had the most incredible approval ratings, very, very strong lead in the opinion polls, looked as though if she went to an election, she'd win a majority of well over 100. Rory, Rory before you get to your main point, I just want to jump in with another question. David Browning, Rory, given your admiration for Theresa May, what do you think about the fact that she gave Boris Johnson such a great office of state? I think that was a a big tactical error, big tactical error. He wasn't expecting it. In fact, Boris thought sort of things were over for him. He was astonished that he was given that. Well, just give her credit for a second. I mean, I think she was a real believer in the team of rivals theories. She's one of the only prime ministers who's really tried to say, okay, I'm not going to have just a narrow group that agrees with me. She genuinely tried to bring in every different bit of the party. And I wish Boris Johnson had been more willing to do that. She believed Conservative Party was a coalition. She told Michael Gove to bugger off and learn about the party. She she did. And she got rid of George Osborne, which made him very angry. Um, but she brought in the left, David Green, David Liddington, David Gork, and she brought in David Davis, Boris Johnson on the right. And she tried to hold that all together. And I think it was a it's quite an old fashioned thing to do. Um, mm. So j- just to come to it, I mean, in the end, I think she, she went into that election where she was well in the lead. She was, and it was blown, completely blown, blown by a combination of Corbyn and by a brave attempt to try to sort out adult social care in the manifesto that went wrong. She then came out limping. And then for the next two and a half years, it's not like you describing Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, because Tony Blair was in a very powerful position going into that election in 2005. Theresa May it was a miracle that she lasted as long as she did. You'll remember mm. Grenfell very soon after the election damaged her a lot, questions about her health, and of course, Brexit grinding on in the background. Mm. Um, mm. So I, I thought she did something miraculous. But of course, in the end, the thing that killed her right at the heart of it was losing that majority, because if she'd kept that majority, unfortunately, I think we might have been able to get a reasonable Brexit through. Now, listen, talking of Theresa, talking of Theresa, Rory, can we, I'd like, I'd really like to get her on the podcast. I keep delivering these Labour giants. Well, I've got, got, I've got a Tory giant lined up for listeners in the next episode. Well, it better be big. It better be big and it better be good. Better be big. Better be big. That's right. It is. I can announce now, Rehman Shishti. No, I would rather have the person who almost voted for him. That would be really interesting. (laughs) (laughs) See you all next week. Rory, pleasure as always. Thank you. Bye-bye.